Uh, we're on chapter 5. We've not yet arrived at the perfume saint's gate, but we're just there. So far, Yogananda, the young Mukunda, has had a very, very philosophical discussion with a sadhu outside the Kaligat temple. And a little too philosophical for some of us, all about introspection. We're on page 45. And just how painful that can be and how hard it is to realize that the ego, you know, has such a tight grip on who we are and everything that we express in this world. And of course, uh, Yogananda, in his sweet way, introduces the need for compassion, even in such harsh introspection. And the saint, the sadhu, of course, says, you know, you're absolutely right. Without compassion, um, we'll never, in a sense, be able to touch God in his entirety. And then when he departs from the sadhu, he bumps into a friend of his, one of those friends who just goes on and on and on and on. And then, of course, with Divine Mother's grace, suddenly the friend decides he has to leave, but not before telling Yogananda that there is this uh, saint nearby, this perfume saint, Gandha Baba is his name, and he recommends Yogananda go see him. And so this is where we are. Yogananda enters into this uh, parlor, into this home, and there one of his uh, disciples of Gandha Baba says, Behold, Gandha Baba on the leopard skin. He can give the natural perfume of any flower to a scentless one, or revive a wilted blossom, or make a person's skin exude delightful fragrance. So this is, you know, the disciple, of course, introducing his guru. And it's, all, it's appropriate to make it a little flowery. And Yogananda said, I looked directly at the saint whose gaze met mine. And then the saint, Gandhababa, says to Mukunda, Son, I am glad to see you. Say what, say what you want. Would you like some perfume? And this is a very both humorous, but at the same time, you can just tell how strong Yogananda was in his own uh, understanding and his own search. And Yogananda's reply is, what for? To express the miraculous way of enjoying perfumes, said the saint. Harnessing God to make odors? What of it? God makes perfume anyway. You can see this little bit of a <laughs> back and forth going. Yes, Yogananda says, but he fashions frail bottles of petals for fresh use and discard. Can you materialize flowers? I materialize perfumes, little friend. Then scent factories will go out of business. I will permit them to keep their trade. My own purpose is to demonstrate the power of God. Sir, is it necessary to prove God? This is Yogananda. Isn't he performing miracles in everything, everywhere? Yes, but we too should manifest some of his infinite creative variety. How long did it take you to master your art? Yogananda asked. Twelve years. For manufacturing sense by astral means? It seems, my honoured saint, you have been wasting a dozen years for fragrances which you can obtain with a few rupees from a florist's shop. Perfumes fade with flowers, the sadhu replies. Perfumes fade with death. Why should I desire that which pleases the body only?
Mr. Philosopher, you please my mind. Now stretch forth your right hand. He made a gesture of blessing. I was a few feet away from Gandhababa. What perfume do you want? Rose, so be it. And to my great surprise, the charming fragrance of rose wafted strongly from the center of my palm. Now, of course, it's a very sweet little exchange as well. And what I appreciate on both sides of this story is, um, A, the saint is very calm. You know, he's not getting agitated. I mean, of course, Yogananda, young Mukunda, is, you know, is kind of doing his best to almost poke the saint a little bit. He's, he's holding his guard, he's, trying, he's holding his stand, he's trying to really establish um, why it is he feels that these miraculous, you know, showings of God's power don't really have any real significance. And he's true in that. But you can see that this saint is not a mere miracle worker. He has achieved a certain sense of also inner connection with God because you can see how, how calm he is even in his conversation, how composed he is, not at all giving in to this little child who's trying to, you know, kind of almost fight with him a little bit. So it's a beautiful little exchange. But you see these words especially from Yogananda's. When he says, God makes perfume anyway, the saint Yogananda says, yes, but he fashions frail bottles of petals for fresh use and discard. Then, of course, when the um, saint says, well, perfumes fade with flowers, and Yogananda says, well, perfumes fade with death. Why should I desire that which pleases the body only? And this, again, you can just see the very, very deep uh, desire on Yogananda's part to just go far beyond the material plane, to just break through, in a sense, a lot of these trappings on the spiritual path. Because, um, you know, if I was there, I would be like, oh, wow, I mean, amazing. Look at these perfumes. Oh, how has he done this? Oh, 12 years. Oh, I wonder if I could also learn this and if I could learn other things. And we'd be very easily taken away. You know, we'd be just swept away by the miraculous power. And Yogadanta, just very, very strong in himself, said, you know, as wonderful as this is, as clearly powerful as this is, is that of what use is it? And for each of us, that's an important question to ask because we're, we're looking constantly for God's power to manifest in this world in a way that we can see it, that we can judge it, that we can, you know, use it to our benefit. And Yogananda just kind of cutting through that, saying, of what use is any of this? Why should I do and look for that which only pleases the body? And that's a very important question for us to ask as well. Narayani, you have something to add here? So now rose fragrance is coming out of Yogananda's palm. He then picks up an odorless flower and he asks the sadhu, the saint, to give it the fragrance of jasmine and he does. And then there's this little background on the sadhu, on this saint. And one of his students informs Yogananda that Gandha Baba, whose proper name was Vishuddha Anand. So that's his name. And he learned many astonishing yoga secrets from a master in Tibet. And this Tibetan yogi, he was assured, had attained the age of over a thousand years. 
Now, that's of course we know could be absolutely true for all we know this Tibetan yogi could be Babaji, but hard to particularly say master doesn't go into it. And then of course soon after Yogananda starts hearing uh, Gandhababa's disciples go, isn't he marvelous? Many members of the Cal Calcutta intelligentsia are among his followers and Yogananda very of course in his witty humor inwardly says, I inwardly resolved not to add myself to their number. So again Yogananda is just kind of testing, you know we, we started the chapter by Yogananda seeing and looking for his guru and he's very clear, he wants to come, he wants to see, he wants to receive and then he very easily, very clearly decides, no this is not my path and that kind of clarity is of course another one thing that we should all be looking for, no this isn't mine because there's lots of stuff out there and today there tends to be a tendency that we feel that the more techniques I know, the more knowledge I gain outwardly, the more you know healing practices I go and take certificates and that's where spiritual progress comes from. Well, true spiritual progress in fact comes from absolute clarity to know that which is yours. You know, you don't need 500 mothers to be able to learn how to love uh, the mother. You just need one mother to learn how to love. And similarly, you just need one path which is yours. And in order to find that, is, that which is yours, yes, it will take some work. Yes, it will take a little looking around. But once you've found it, or once at least you have clarity of this is not it, it behooves us to listen to that clarity, listen to that intuition and see where it truly leads us rather than just stocking up ourselves with more techniques, more practices, more understandings, all of which are nice, are helpful, but won't take us to freedom necessarily. Anything to add, Mariani? This is something that we are going to keep seeing in Yogananda's approach with certain saints because throughout the book Autobiography of a Yogi, Yogananda presents himself as this humble seeker devotee that is looking for his guru and is looking for certain lessons and how he can develop that relationship with God so profoundly. But we can see even from this chapter that Yogananda actually <laughs> was teaching a lesson to this saint. I mean, Yogananda, let's not forget that he was a self-realized master. And when Yogananda here tells this saint, he's telling him about all the perfumes and Yogananda says, what for? Like saying, why do I need to, get, to be caught up in these, you know, miracles or these materializations or these manifestations or appear things? And then the other thing that Yogananda says to this saint is, uh, is it necessary to prove God? Isn't he performing miracles in everything? everywhere so for Yogananda's understanding and mine it was like how <laughs> a saint of your statue cannot see can't see that God is everywhere why don't you go deeper why are you still 
being impressed or being still performing these kind of miracles. And, and this is something that it will be good for all of us to keep in mind. Every encounter that Yogananda is going to have with several saints, there is a reason why he met these saints, just to really almost shake a little bit of uh, their understanding and perhaps helping them to go deeper in their own understanding and their own experience of God's presence, God's power in their lives. I mean, it's, even Yogananda says here, when uh, the Swami, this saint was explaining about the perfumes and Yogananda says, what for do you need all that? He goes on and says, I thought his remark was rather childish. So we could see that uh, Yogananda's state of consciousness, even though he wasn't able to reveal himself as such, he was already very, very advanced spiritually. And, and we see these kind of interactions, kind of, you know, as Shurja was saying, not only poking, but, you know, trying to open in doors for all these saints to really uh, telling them sadly, just go beyond that. You know, you can go farther, you can reach higher. And why do you need, you know, all these perhaps lesser things? Yogananda then says that he also later heard that um, Gandha Baba, in fact, doesn't only uh, <laughs> make and create fragrances, but he, in fact, has a power, as Yogananda said, which I wish were possessed by the starving millions today, which is that he could actually bring any food forth that you desired. And then his friend tells him this little story where that's what he does exactly, brings out of season um, oranges. Now, then Yogananda goes on to explain just a little bit scientifically how such materializations are possible. He says here, the different sensory stimuli to which man reacts, tactual, which is touch, visual, gustatory, the taste, auditory and olfactory, are produced by vibratory vibrations in electrons and protons. So again, he's breaking it down to essentially saying it's all energy. All these stimuli that we receive are energy-based stimuli, protons, electrons, and the vibrations in turn are regulated by lifetrons. This is a term Yogananda gave, and this is the even subtler reality of prana behind the electrons and protons. Subtle life forces of finer than atomic energies, intelligently charged with the five distinct sensory idea substances. Gandha Baba, by tuning himself into the cosmic force by certain yogic practices, was able to guide the lifetrons to rearrange their vibratory structure and objectivize the desired result. Yogananda goes more deeply, in fact, Sri Yukteswar goes a little deeply in a much later chapter on the resurrection of Sri Yukteswar when he talks again about the same thing, how these saints are able to use vibrations and atoms from the universe and then kind of mold them to materialize that which they desire. 
His perfume, fruit and other miracles were actual materializations of mundane vibrations and not inner sensations hypnotically produced. Then he goes on to say, and this is, you can say, the essential moral or the main point of this, of this chapter. Performances of miracles shown by the perfume saint are spectacular but spiritually useless. Having little purpose beyond entertainment, they are digressions from a serious search for God. Again, just very clear, not even like, oh, isn't it wonderful how nice he did? Because it's not that Yogananda was not um, impressed on one level. It's just he realized that, well, if I'm going for God, why would I waste time in this, in, on this journey? And again, for each of us, that's an important question to ask. Why would I waste time if in fact, if indeed, God is my final goal? Once Yogananda said, I believe to Swami Kriyananda, that the greatest miracle a master produces is not to use his power even though he has the entire power of the universe. Now that's saying something. Like Christ, like, I mean, like Yogananda himself, you would not often see him displaying his powers. But look at that from the perspective of having all the power in the world and then not using it to show others. I mean, that takes so much inner strength because if you and I ever were to receive these powers, I think we would immediately start using it in different ways. A, to our, for our own benefit. B, to help others that we deem, uh, you know, are ones we love. And C, to kind of show people and prove to them that we have these powers. And so you can see how easily we would digress, how easily we'd get caught up in that. And in fact, that is one of the greatest stumbling blocks on the spiritual path, the acquiring of these Siddhis. Yes, of course. I was going to add to that that Yogananda said the spiritual path is not a circus, meaning that we should be very careful when, not only when we hear other people's experiences on the path and what they have felt in their meditations or the kind of experiences and visions that they have, nor also the kind of things that we are looking for in meditation. Because sometimes what happens is if we, we can have a spiritual experience in meditation, we can have an actual experience in someone else's presence or in a saint. But if that experience doesn't change your consciousness, is useless in a sense. It, it will give you a taste, but the risk is you may feel so impressed and so, um, how can I say? Just caught up. Caught up <laughs> in that experience that then, from then on, the only thing that you will be looking for is that outward experience and really forgetting what's the whole purpose of the spiritual path, which is just to, you know, love God and feel God's presence 
in your heart so be very careful in fact you should you know once in a while scan your intentions about why you are following a spiritual path why you are sitting to meditate why you are practicing your techniques do you really want to you know this kind of miracle experiences or would you rather just be touched so profoundly so deeply by god's love that your life really start changing in a much more permanent way because those experiences if is your good if it's your good karma you may attract them and they could be a boost spiritually for you so you will feel um, enthusiastic about it it will give you the willpower the energy to keep deepening your practices but believe me those experiences sometimes are just tricks and just to really prove uh, god testing us if are you really mm, wanting me for my miracles for what i want what i have to give you or are you really mm, wanting myself you know god himself so those will be important things to keep in mind do i want the gifts or do i want the giver of all gifts yogananda ends this uh, chapter by talking about a persian mystic abu said who once laughed at certain fakirs who were proud of their miraculous powers over water air and space abu said says a frog is also at home in the water the crow and the vulture easily fly in the air and the devil is simultaneously present in the east and the west <laughs> a true man is he who dwells in righteousness among his fellow men who buys and sells yet is never for a single instant forgetful of god he then goes on to say um on another occasion the same teacher gave his views on the religious life or on a spiritual life in this particular case to lay aside what is in your head which is your selfish desires and ambitions to bestow freely what you have in your hand and never to flinch from the blows of adversity and this really is the mark of a true man of god both these things not to worried about your ability to control the water and the air and men but over here as it says to dwell in righteousness among fel- your fellow men to buy and sell which means to act to be fully involved in this world to be responsible in this world yet never for a single instant forgetful of god and then of course to lay aside what is in your head to freely bestow what is in your hand and to never flinch from from blows of adversity and if i think this is a wonderful uh kind of a yardstick for us to be judging ourselves in a sense by or measuring ourselves and that's 
the mark of whether or not we're making spiritual progress. Am I getting more and more righteous, more and more dharmic? Are spiritual principles more and more the guiding force in my life? Am I able to fulfill my responsibilities with no desire to escape them? Is spirituality for so many people is an escape. Is, is, oh, I'm looking for God, therefore these lower things I don't need to do. On one level, that's absolutely true. But on the other level, it's many of these things that participate in your search for God. So, are you trying to escape any of your responsibilities? That which God naturally takes away from you, give thanks for that. But a lot of it, He requires us to participate in. And then, of course, am I ever forgetful of God? <laughs> so This is a tough one because, yeah, well, we keep forgetting Him again and again, again and again, again and again. And again, can I set aside that which is in my head? Can I keep giving freely that is which is in my hand, the generosity of my spirit? And in the face of adversity, can I just stand strong and look my karma in the eye? Can I look trouble in the eye and just say, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to, that's God's power that flows through me. No miracles, nothing to escape from, no responsibilities to shirk, but to face, enjoy with God. And there's this beautiful last line, but I'd like Narayani to... Should I say the last sec paragraph? You want to add? Okay. So then Yogananda concludes. Neither the impartial sage at Kalighat nor the Tibetan trained yogi had satisfied my yearning for a guru. And finally he says, when I finally met my master, he taught me by sublimity of example alone the measure of a true man. I think most of these words speak for themselves, but I'd like Narayani to add what it is that she wanted. Well, basically, when you are really in front of a Christ-like figure, uh, a guru, a self-realized master, and as we have seen in the previous chapters, uh, in the presence of Lahiri Mahashaya, most of the times words were not needed because when we learn the most is really by becoming an example to others and by and others becoming an example to us a true master needs very little words or none to transfer you a specific lesson or, spe or a specific spiritual concept that you need to learn. And this is what Yogananda learned the most in the presence of Sri Yuteshwar. Sri Yuteshwar was a very practical man. And, and we'll see this in the following chapters when Yogananda meets Sri Yuteshwar and spends many years in the ashram and hermitage of Sri Yuteshwar, I was thinking most of the things that I have learned when I was serving Swami Kriyananda, there were not the things that he said or from the books I read from him. It was mostly from what I saw in him how he behaved 
with other people, how he behaved when he was alone and he had no one nor he knew someone was watching him. That's when you really can perceive the statue and the greatness of a saint where they, they don't know they are being seen. There is not a camera in front of you where you need to give the gyan and you, win, you need to you know, read the scriptures. And, and that's something that for each one of us uh, should keep in mind. One of the things where we can learn the most is by how people are behaving, especially in difficult situations. Because it's not what we read, it's what we do with those things that we read and how we can put them in practice. It's not enough to learn the scriptures by memory. It's not enough to know the Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, all the characters and all their personalities. If you don't know how to apply those concepts in daily life. So what Yogananda is trying to convey here is try to look for those living examples that are living, that making the teachings alive. And that's, that's something that each one of us eventually need to become. You, me, we need to become living examples of kindness, of patience, of generosity, of compassion, of, I mean, joy, of so many uh, divine qualities that it's our destiny to manifest. And in fact, this is what the spiritual path is all about, becoming divine human beings, perfect Christ call it, become perfect as your father is perfect in heaven. And this is really what we are aspiring and what the Guru wants uh, from us and for us to become living examples. We may have horrible meditation sometimes. We may not be able to understand the teachings perfectly, to understand certain concepts, centered certain things. But if we are able to become examples of joy and again, generosity, kindness, that's really what God needs the most right now here on earth well we did it we finished chapter five and we're actually going to enter into chapter six hooray for us chapter six is titled the tiger swami so now we are going to be uh, meeting one more wonderful saint i have discovered the tiger swami's address let us visit him tomorrow this is a friend of yogananda's who comes to him I was eager, this is Yogananda saying, I was eager to meet the saint who in his pre-monastic life had caught and fought tigers with his naked hands. A boyish enthusiasm over such remarkable feats was strong within me. 
So we're seeing over here that you know, despite what we saw in the previous chapter where Yogananda took this other saint to task, he was still very excited and he was still a young boy, really enthusiastic to know how did this saint defeat these tigers. Actually, I felt you can share with the phone that it was like a past memory of sorts, you know, mm -hmm. because he awoken on him. He does mention it again. As a desire, like I wish I could also fight these tigers. And Ariani saying it was probably a past memory that was awoken in within him, which is very true. Uh, in fact, many of the things we are enthusiastic about are because things, these are things that we have participated in one way or the other in our own previous lives. So they find they find the house, they knock at the door, they're ushered in, but then they're asked to wait. And again, little bit of humor that Yogananda brings in. He says, our long wait there caused uncomfortable misgivings. You know, kind of wondering, ki, what's happening? Is he going to see us? Is he not going to see us? And he says, India's unwritten law for the truth seeker is patience. A master may purposely make a test of one's eagerness to meet him. This psychological ruse is freely employed in the West by doctors and dentists. <laughs> of course, this is nothing against doctors and dentists. We love you very much. But Yogananda here is just so kind of casually kind of placing this little gem in there that one of the most important things and he calls this India's unwritten law for the truth seeker is patience and that's another one of those things that we need to really settle into especially on our spiritual journey because this is a long process God's presence while completely present in this moment to us is still hidden from us by layers and layers and layers and layers of ignorance. <laughs> and those layers are going to take their own sweet time. And that patience is going to be, in fact, I believe Yogananda said, patience is the fastest route or shortest, shortest. route shortest. to God. <laughs> kind of seems a little bit of an oxymoron there. But just by accepting and allowing and resting in this moment, which is what patience truly means, you will actually quicken the whole process than by restlessly going around and saying, oh, I need to work on this and I need to work on that attitude and I need to overcome this issue and I need to, oh, when will I get there? When will I get there? So, you know, just like, okay, now that I know what my goal is, um, I'm going to rest. And that wait, as Yogananda said, sometimes the masters purposefully to test the seeker would ask them, to wait and I'm not saying just to meet them to see them but he'll ask us to wait in our own lives before a certain problem is solved before a certain tendency is overcome before a certain experience is uh, given to us in meditation and so the more we consciously cultivate patience the more quickly in fact these things begin to manifest in our lives you want to say anything so um, this Tiger Swami's real name or his monastic name is actually So Hong Swami. So a lot of like our Hong So, but So Hong Swami. And the sight, so they're now finally ushered in and Yogananda says, the sight of his tremendous body affected us strangely. We had never before seen such a chest or such football-like biceps. On an immense neck, the Swami's fierce, yet calm face 
was adorned by flowing locks, beard and moustache. A hint of dove-like and tiger-like qualities shone in his dark eyes. So, this is just a little image of this extremely strong Swami. I mean, you would not be expecting to see one of these renunciates to have football-like biceps and these big chests. And uh, this, is the, this is the sight that awaited Yogananda and his friend. Then, of course, they begin to converse here. And in conversing, Yogananda asks him, Will you please tell us how it was possible for you to fight and subdue the most ferocious jungle beasts, the royal Bengal, the royal Bengal tiger? And the Swami says, You look upon tigers as tigers. I know them as pussycats. Swamiji, Yogananda says, I think I could impress my subconscious mind with the thought that tigers are pussycats. But could I make tigers believe it? So there's a little humor here, but again, there's a very deep, subtle truth being expressed. And especially in the, uh, from the concept of affirmations. Because a lot of us are, you know, affirming, not quite sure whether we even believe what we are affirming. And there's this thought here. I may convince my own subconscious mind you know, that such and such is true, that I'm actually very kind, that I'm actually very generous. But does the universe believe it? Will the world cooperate with me? Will the universe conspire to make it so? And this is what Yogananda is kind of subtly hinting at. Because the saint says, oh, you see tigers as tigers. So in a sense, he's saying, you see your karma as something really big. You see problems as something that are hard to overcome. I see them as pussycats. I see them as nothing. And Yogananda says, well, okay, I could probably convince my mind that these problems are not big, that this karma is not hard to overcome. But does the karma know it? Will the world support it? And then the yogi, the yogi says, of course, strength also is necessary. One cannot expect victory from a baby who imagines a tiger to be a house cat. Powerful hands are my sufficient weapon. Now, two things. Again, forget the tigers for a moment. What's really going on is he says, okay, you can convince your mind, yes, that's step one, but strength is also necessary. And here strength, he's not talking about physical strength, although for the tigers he is, but action is what is being. My bare hands, this is what we act with. You can't just be going on, I'm kind, I am kind, I am kind, I am kind, and then the moment somebody comes, you know, you're just naturally unkind and then you wonder why is it not working why is it not working no you have to put out actions that are kind you have to you have to be proactive in your kindness you have to seek out people to be kind and not wait for when the opportunity comes then perhaps i'll get to be kind just because i have been convincing my subconscious mind and so this is a very again another little hidden gem for us to remember the mind is extremely capable of shaping our reality and the tiger swami goes on in this vein he'll talk a lot about the strength of the mind but action outward um, um, kind of expression of this mental strength is also needed and then in fact 
the karma does change the universe does listen only if it knows you're serious only if it knows you're willing to put out the energy that is necessary and you're not just daydreaming about a quality or about a problem you want to overcome then he says a number of men have physical power such as mine but still lack in cool confidence again that complete assurance that of course this is true that there is not even a hint of doubt both in action and in thought of whether or not he is capable to overcome capable to face his tests and this is essentially tiger swami's unique contribution through the autobiography of a yogi just that absolute strength both of body and mind to be able to do something that for most humans perhaps for all of us will be practically impossible then he goes on to say in the same vein mind is the wielder of muscles the force of a hammer blow depends on the energy applied the power expressed by a man's bodily instrument depends on his aggressive will and courage you see these are the real two ingredients here will and courage and then let's listen to this because this is really fascinating when you read it again you suddenly remember wow i can't believe you know these things are in here the body is literally manufactured and sustained by the mind through pressure of instincts from past lives strengths and weaknesses percolate gradually into human consciousness they express as habits which in turn ossify into a desirable or undesirable body outward frailty has mental origin can you imagine that so what the swami is saying here is that the body we've chosen in this life is dependent solely on the mental you can say vision that we hold of ourselves that we've built of ourselves that ossify that solidify into the physical form so if you think you're obese if you think you're too thin if you think you're weak if you think you don't have enough strength or if you think you do it's all part of a long process that then we continue to cultivate in today's lifetime so think of your body from that perspective and then see what is it that you need to change if you are unhappy with how your body is then first look to what is the way you even see yourselves what could be the habits and thought patterns that would have generated this outward form of yours and the yogi here says again both are needed however the mind is the wielder because the force of the hammer blow depends on the energy behind it and the body itself and what we are able to express in this world first comes from the energy behind it which originates from thought anything to say he then goes to say if the master allows himself to be commanded by the servant here the master is the mind and the servant is of course the body the later the latter becomes autocratic the mind is similarly enslaved by submitting to bodily dictation 
So another little kind of um, advice here is don't easily give in to your bodily desires. And what are our bodily desires? Too much rest, too much food, too much sex. Um, what other bodily desires there are? I guess these are three main ones. Uh, too much activity even. To be too restless all the time is a bodily desire. And so everything, just again judge what are the compulsions that your body goes through, that your body craves for. And then see if you can kind of separate, step back just a little bit. Just give it a little less than it is asking for. Thereby gradually shift the, you can say, balance of power back in favor of the mind and less in favor of the body. If you can get your mind to be the master, which while we may think that's true, is usually not. We are far more driven by desires and bodily pleasures of all kinds uh, and less by our own ability to control those pleasures, control those desires. So very simple, very easy thing to do in a certain way is just whatever it asks for, maybe you have to give it, maybe you are compelled to give it, but give it a little less than it has asked for and gradually you will see yourself gaining control over the body and over those desires. It could be your ending line because we're at Yes, that could be my ending line. <laughs> I was thinking that, in fact, those are the two ingredients, will, willpower, and courage. And what Shurjo was explaining about pull yourself a little bit back, it really requires a lot of courage from our side, even more than willpower, because courage is when we are saying, we are telling to our mind, yes, I'm going to do this no matter how hard it becomes at the beginning, but yes, I'm going to do this, I'm going to face it, and I'm going to do whatever it takes. So if you are really wanting to make some adjustments in your daily schedule, in the tendencies of your body desires and likes and dislikes, certain things that you want to change about yourself, you have to want to do that. And that's the real courage to say, because you can have the willpower to move mountains, but if you don't really want to do it if you don't have the courage that is going to take uh, willpower will just remain you know will be pending there so so make sure you want to make that change and then add the willpower i think that's uh, the two most important ingredients you, you we really want to want to do that, to want to meditate, to want to energize, to want to change our diet, to want to change our tendencies. It's just not nice. It's not like the thought of it will be nice. It's, it's just, it's not enough the thought of it would be nice. I need to want it so desperately that then when I add my willpower, the real change happens is when grace comes in. So, so do you really want? Mm -hmm. And if you do, 
then you have 50% of the battle already won. Lovely. Well, let's let's end here. Let's try to keep some of these uh, thoughts in mind. One, of course, is don't seek for experiences. Don't seek for outward miracles. Don't look for the proof of God's existence. Just know that he's there and learn to love him ever more. And learn, as that Saint Abu Said said, to be righteous, to be responsible, but never for an instant forgetful of God. And then try to be an example daily. Try to be a daily example, like Sri Yukteswar taught Yogananda. Of course, through the Tiger Swami, let's see if we can develop that courage and will to not only convince the mind, but convince the universe that this is in fact what we seek most desperately.